Coming up on Omnivore, feeding generational food and beverage preferences, preparing for FDA's new traceability rule, and breaking from the crowd in plant-based chicken. It's all ahead on episode 18 of Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. If you're a member of Generation Alpha, age 13 and under, you'd probably be perfectly happy living on smoothies and energy bars. Millennials, meanwhile, want foods that deliver digestive health benefits, and baby boomers prefer products that meet their changing nutritional needs. In this segment, our resident consumer trends expert, Dr. Liz Sloan, talks with Food Technologies' Mary Ellen Kuhn about the ways food and beverage wants and needs break out along generational lines and some defining characteristics of the six key demographic segments of the U.S. population. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Liz. And in the August issue of Food Tech, you wrote about demographic segments and marketing to those segments. So I thought we could have some fun today. And I'm going to ask you, what's one thing that food and beverage marketers should know about each demographic segment? And let's start with Gen Alpha, the youngest consumers. Sure, that sounds like fun. Okay, first of all, they are the youngest consumers and they're about to to turn age 13. And there's 45 million of them and there's even going to be more. Uh, because it, it, it actually the end of their realm, if you will, goes to 2024. Um, and they're really important for the, to the food industry because households with kids and households with teens spend the most money on food. And it's, it's pretty interesting. These are the kids of the COVID lockdown. They're very family focused. They're socially conscious. They're, of course, we all know, ethnically diverse. And they're very super tech savvy. So think about things coming up like shareable dining. You're more like a family platter type of things. Think about how sophisticated their tastes have become because their parents are the millennials, the number one buyer of specialty foods. And half of millennials say they have been feeding their kids specialty foods fairly regularly all along. They're they're raised as anti-sugar. They gained weight during COVID. They live on smoothies and energy bars. And they've had less exposure to fast food than generations before them because of COVID and the restaurants being closed for so long. And one of the kickers is one in 10 households with kids claims to be vegetarian. So it's really too early to tell. I have absolutely no idea where they're going to come out in the end, but they're going to be different. Very interesting. Well, let's just go up the ladder and let's do a Gen Z who they're 14 to 26 years old. Yeah, Gen Z, they're my favorite, I'm telling you. They're the experimenters. They're the number one group that eats ethnic foods more uh, beyond Italian, Mexican, and Chinese. They're the most frequent eaters. They're driving big gains 
I didn't think they got up early, but they do an early morning snacking and late night snacking. And one quarter are actually eating candy with their lunchtime meal, which is really different. And we know they love the planet, but they are more planet conscious than all generations combined. And that says something going forward on how we need to incorporate that into our products. And they're behind the explosive demand for mood and mental health foods and drinks. Lots of input there. Well, how about millennials? That's a big group. Oh, millennials, poor millennials, they've changed. They're parents now. Uh, They're the number one group now to entertain at home, probably because they need somebody to watch the kids, right? Using, they use deli platters, and this fascinated me, and frozen foods to entertain, which is really big on tapped on on, uh, opportunity. Uh, They're still number one when it comes to trying to create restaurant style meals at home and to buy specialty foods. They haven't lost their throne there. They're junkies about air fryers and instant pots. In terms of foods, they're the number one smoothie eaters, sushi eaters, and now the specialty desserts is their passion. Well, how about Gen X? They're 45 to 58 years old. Gen X, this is, show me the money, here's Gen X. They're the fine diners, They're the ones who eat away from home lunches when they're they're the workers. They're the sit down casual restaurant diners and those who take take out from more of the sit down places like casual dining, as an example. They have some pretty unique, very specialized traits because they're very small compared to the other groups, but they're unique. Number one, they spend more money on fresh meat and poultry than any other generation. They account for 31% of fresh meat sales, even though that they're smaller. So if you're trying to promote a marinade or a spice or anything related to that scratch home cooking, they're the number one scratch cooks for meat and poultry. They're they're your target. They prefer sugar over any other sweetener, artificial sweetener or um, natural, all natural sweeteners. It's interesting too, they're the most, when it comes to health, they're the most mindful eaters. They think about health and, and what they're going to do about it, more so than the boomers or the even the older generation. Well, I'm a baby boomer, so we've got to talk <laughs> about the baby boomers. I want to hear what you have to say about this. Okay, group. now I can get it off my chest. This is the one that dri- has driven me crazy for years and it hasn't changed, unfortunately. This industry has got to stop ignoring the changing nutritional needs of aging consumers and not just the nutritional needs, but the classic food preferences they have. There's still 68 million, 69 million of them. And they love things like turkey and ham and some of the basics. And it's just not what's featured on menus or other places. So that is a big, big untapped opportunity. In terms of unique things that they do, They're the number one buyer of frozen side dishes to accompany an entree among all generations. They're the number one purchasers of frozen casseroles. They love Chinese food. And and we've got one group left, the matures. Oh, the matures. I love the matures. They are the most likely to regularly, like every day, eat breakfast and dessert. And I think we forget about that. 
um, they are the fastest growing ranks of exercisers by far. We all think all the young people are out there exercising and lifting weights, but it's, it's really that older group. We've got, got to get up and go. In terms of foods, I think we also have a misconception when you're of that age that um, you know, you're eating more prepared foods. In fact, one out of 10 person over age 65 relies primarily on prepared foods. So they either pick it up or they uh, order it from takeout or maybe frozen meals or whatever. And I love the new Lean Cuisine balance bowls, the frozen meals, which are really aimed at this audience that meet the American diabetes uh, guidelines for healthy eating. And I think we're gonna see a lot more of that. We should see. So I have a couple other questions for you. Your article made the point, which was really interesting, that the average U.S. household size is now just 2.5, which you pointed out is the smallest ever. So how should product developers be responding to that new demographic reality? Well, that's a tough question, Mary Ellen. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think the way to look at this is to go back and look at what's happened, because three things have happened. The first is people living alone whether they're single or not, living alone has jumped up 14% in the last 10 years. So there's just more people living alone. And that obviously has pretty direct implications for packaging or whatever. But 70% of U.S. households right now don't have any children at home in the household. Uh, and then the third thing, which is kind of astounding when you think about it, but then the third thing is that the empty nesters we've been talking about for the last 10 years they're pretty much married and they're pretty much older, but couples or two people living alone is by far now the largest, if you want to call them family units, meaning they have more than one person in the household. So dinners for two might be a really good idea or a little larger casseroles, so you have a little leftover or something. Well, how about urban dwellers? That's another group you touched on in, the, in your article and as particularly influential. So what are the particular needs of the urban dwellers? Well, I think the urban dwellers are another gigantic missed opportunity. First of all, there's 100 million people that live in what we would probably call more of an inner city environment. Just think of the size of New York or Chicago or, or LA as an example. And it's interesting because they are heavy, heavy users compared to everyone else of fresh prepared foods. They go down the street to a local grocery store and pick up a dinner and they bring it home from the deli and they're the number one seafood eater. They're the number one to be flexitarian, vegetarian, vegan, number one for being humane concern, concerned for you know animals uh, in the food chain. Uh, and they are far, by far, if you think about it, it makes sense. They over-index for being reliant on online shopping. Well, Liz, thank you so much. As always, it's just a wonderful conversation with you. And we really appreciate you making time for the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Liz Sloan is president of Sloan Trends Incorporated and a contributing editor of Food Technology Magazine. You can explore more details about how consumers' food and beverage preferences differ from generation to generation in the August issue. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor.
Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. While there's still more than two years left for the food industry to come into compliance with the FDA's final food traceability rule, the nearly 600-page document is so complex that many experts are urging supply chain stakeholders to get planning as fast as they can. The final rule, which implements Section 204D of the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA, aims to reduce foodborne illnesses and deaths by instituting additional traceability record-keeping requirements for high-risk foods, with a compliance deadline of January 20, 2026. Food Technologies' Julie Larson Brisher met with IFT's resident traceability experts Blake Harris and Sarah Brattinger to find out more about the rule and how to prepare to beat that ticking clock. Well, hi, Blake. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Julie. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Well, you know, our podcast segment isn't as lengthy as FDA's final food traceability rule, but uh, could you give us a top-line summary of what the rule is designed to do and some of its basic elements? Maybe we'll start with you, Sarah. Yeah, definitely. So the food traceability rule is one rule among the larger set of rules under the Food Safety Modernization Act that have been developed over the last decade to improve the overall safety of our food system. Um, And this rule in particular aims to enhance the tracking and tracing of food. So we've all seen recalls in the last few years that have seemed to drag on forever, ones that require all the products to be pulled from the shelves because we can't tell what's affected and what's isn't. And the goal is to have those occurrences stop. So this rule is really designed to improve both the speed and accuracy of recalls while reducing the time and the scale. So for now, the food traceability rule applies only to a set of foods that were identified as having a higher risk of causing foodborne illness recalls, like fruits and vegetables, seafood, dairy products, and shelled eggs. And these foods are known as designated foods that are specified on the FDA's food traceability list. Entities that process, pack, or hold any of these designated foods have to establish, maintain, and share certain traceability records. And when we say traceability records, we're referring to the CTEs and the KDEs. So CTEs, critical tracking events, and KDEs, key data elements, are probably the most critical feature of the traceability rule because they specify who is responsible for collecting what data and when. So they're kind of the core framework of the rule. And the cool thing about the CTEs and KDEs is that while they are required for everyone subject to the rule, they can be applied to pretty much any food product, which means that any food industry actor that wants to improve their traceability can adopt this common framework and apply it to their business. 
Um, there's a number of other important elements to the traceability rule, like the exemptions, the traceability lot code, the traceability plan. But like you said, we don't have hours for this podcast. So for anyone that wants to learn more about the rule, um, I would highly recommend checking out IFT's FISMA 204 resources webpage to get the full picture of everything in this rule. That's a great summary, Sarah. You know, and as this podcast airs, Blake, companies on that food traceability list have just about two and a half years left to come into compliance. What are some of the challenges that these companies and their supply chain partners face in meeting that deadline? Yeah, I would say one of the top ones is awareness and education. Sarah and I kind of live in this world day in and day out, but when when they let us out to conferences and you start talking to people, it's kind of surprising how many folks you run into that are either hearing about it for the first time or trying to attend conferences to learn more about it. So, I mean, I would say awareness and the need for this whole community that's affected by this role to really start talking about this, putting it at the top of the priority list. Education. So Sarah touched on some of the key components, you know, the, the food traceability list. What does this thing cover and how, do, how does that affect your particular company? What are those CTEs and KDEs that you're going to have to collect and share? The traceability lock code, right? Educating yourself about how that works. I think this is one that's going to be kind of sticky for folks because they see that as a, as a kind of key component to the rule and they think, oh, well, we use lock codes. But the way that the FDA is requiring implementation of these traceability lock codes is generally different than how the industry has historically used them. Then obviously there's a need for traceability plans and there's a whole list of exemptions. I will say that the rule, as you alluded to, is extremely long. I think the whole thing is 600 pages. Most of that is FDA's responses to the public comments that they received which is actually really helpful for context, but it's not something you necessarily, you necessarily need to read all 600 pages about to, to understand how the rule may apply to you. And there's also a ton of resources available. Sarah mentioned the GFTC's website. We've got white papers, we've got videos that are specific to the different commodities that are covered, links to webinars. There's a lot of educational material out there that's been done over the last nine months since the rule was released. And then I would also say a big challenge is needing to work with your supply chain partners, right? Your suppliers, your customers, so that you know that everybody's on the same page. You've got a plan for how to collect and share this data that is required by this rule. And then lastly, you've got to get started now. There's only until January 26th, 2026, before enforcement begins. And this is a a complicated rule that really touches every level of the supply chain. And there's there's a lot of education that needs to happen. There's a lot of coordination in these supply chains that need to happen. So time is not on your side. Get started now. Right. And you know, 
there's a lot of tools and educational resources that have been developed by IFT. And I know that IFT has released the FDA commissioned Tech Enabled Traceability Insights Report. Uh, which evaluates food traceability trends based on submissions by participants in FDA's 2021 low or no cost tech enabled traceability challenge. And so could you talk a little bit about the insights that have come out of that report? Yeah, absolutely. So the FDA's low or no cost traceability challenge from 2021, uh, it was really to encourage traceability stakeholders to develop and promote low and no cost digital traceability solutions for the food industry. Uh, There were 90 different participants from almost a dozen different countries that submitted ideas. And after the challenge concluded and the winners were announced, uh, IFT got exclusive access to these submissions to kind of do an overall analysis on some, some themes that we were seeing throughout. And so the report focused on four key themes, the first of which was interoperability, or that's the ability of software systems to exchange and interpret data without the need for human intervention. So we really looked at the use of data standards, communications protocols that each of these submissions kind of utilized. The next theme was uh, solution support and infrastructure needs. So... I guess a good example is, you know, having a software available is one thing, but there's a whole host of other considerations to operationalize that technology. And one of them would be access to internet, right? So a lot of these uh, supply chain actors, particularly the ones that are further upstream, may have little or no connectivity to the internet to help them be part of this digital transformation. The third key theme was usability. So we saw that only 15% of the solutions mention multilingual support. And the reality is the folks harvesting the food may need uh, multilingual support if we actually expect them to input data. And another example of this is you have work going on in processing facilities that may be very cold or very hot or wet. And are these technologies designed to allow staff to input data in those types of environments? The last consideration was more from an organizational investment perspective. We called it cost considerations beyond the sticker price. And this is where we laid out about a a dozen different considerations for individual companies that are considering solution purchase, right? And so... These are different things that they need to think through themselves, as well as ask the solution providers that they're working with that they're considering to invest in, right? Sarah, uh, can you share a few tips about industry or educational resources that companies, especially those on the FTL, should access when they're developing or building tech-enabled traceability systems? Sure. So like we mentioned earlier, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center has produced a number of FISMA-specific resources, but we also have a traceability workbook that will kind of walk users through designing a traceability program. So for those looking to just understand the concept of traceability in general, because that's, you know, kind of a precursor to the rule, or for those just looking to figure out what the rule means, wrap their heads around it, I think that's a really great place to start. 
For those looking towards implementation, I think industry associations are one of the best resources because not only are they a source of education, but they are also a source of collaboration, which is so incredibly important for traceability, right? Because it's a group project. Like Blake mentioned, you have to be able to work with your trading partners. So for looking at the traceability rule, the FDA has specified what data needs to be collected, but they haven't specified how it needs to be formatted or shared. They've allowed industry to determine for themselves how that's going to work. And that really needs to be a collaborative, collective effort. So whether it's a commodity-specific organization like the International Fresh Produce Association or a traceability-specific initiative like the Global Dialogue on Seafood Traceability or a supply chain segment org like the National Grocers Association, there are hundreds of organizations out there. So find that group of your peers because traceability implementation is 1,000 times easier when everyone is following a common practice. Well, thanks, Blake and Sarah, for sharing your expertise with us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Julie. Yeah, it's been great. Blake Harris is Technical Director of IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. And Sarah Brattinger is a traceability and food safety scientist with IFT. Visit ift.org gftc to download a copy of IFT's Tech-Enabled Traceability Insights Report and access the other educational materials and tools mentioned in today's episode. You can also read additional insights about this topic in the August issue of Food Technology. According to SPIN's data, the U.S. plant-based meat alternatives market may be cooling. The total U.S. market, including retail, food service, and e-commerce, experienced 2% growth in 2022, which is down from 6% and 22% growth in the previous two years. Still, startups are finding niches in the market and experimenting with new branding strategies that seem to be resonating with consumers. Deputy Managing Editor Kelly Hensel met up with Dave Zilko, the CEO and co-founder of one such startup, to talk about how branding and taste help set Skinny Butcher's chicken alternatives apart. I think the one thing about Skinny Butcher that kind of sets itself apart, at least on the on the grocery store shelf, is the branding. It's really fun. Um, it's unique. Uh, you know, but obviously there's a trend in, in the, the meat alternatives market that where sales are decreasing. And so I'm wondering what else about it besides the branding sets it apart so that those repeat purchases will happen. Our approach to building Skinny Butcher was to simply be the best product on the market. So we define being the best product on the market by winning on branding and winning on flavor profile. So to start with branding, we wanted to draw people into the flexitarian tent with a very appealing approach that literally creates a bond with the consumer at the point of sale. So we came up with a name called Skinny Butcher, and the premise of that is that there's an old joke that says you never trust a skinny chef or a skinny butcher. If they're skinny, they're not eating their own food. And so we, we gave our butcher a retro feel for authenticity to say, hey, this is really great food. He's winking at you to suggest that, look, there's 
This is so good, even I'm eating it. You can trust me. So he's got a very endearing brand personality. And we are employing a device called the Thought Bubble, in which he speaks to the consumer at the point of sale in a fun, snappy way. So again, our brand aesthetic suggests that we're not taking ourselves too seriously. You can feel comfortable trying us. So with respect to winning on flavor profile, we found in Europe a bamboo fiber strain, and it gives our texture a remarkable chicken-like visual. From there, we added pea protein, which is the gold standard in this industry. The issue with pea protein is that you get an unpleasant aftertaste. And what we did when we were developing our proprietary spice blend, we employed masking agents that very successfully eliminate this unpleasant aftertaste. Now, from there, we said we want to ensure that there's no difference between our skinny butcher plant-based chicken breasts and something you would get in a quick serve restaurant. And what's the hottest thing going in quick serve restaurants right now? It's all these Southern fried chicken sandwiches. There's a war going on. Everybody's got one. So we developed a proprietary double breading process that gives us a crispy format that we're sub-branding as crazy crispy. So it's a real point of strategic differentiation for us. Some of the other big uh, meat alternative companies started out in food service and kind of then trickled their way down to retail, whereas you guys went retail, if I'm correct, at the same time as food service or, or close to um, with the Wow Bow uh, Let Us Entertain You partnership. Is that correct? Yeah. So what we did, we we developed our line for retail, but simultaneously we were getting such a terrific response to both the brand aesthetic and the flavor profile, and this was at the height of the pandemic, that we thought this would be a great virtual kitchen um, concept. So we developed one. Now, we didn't have any particular experience in that, so we were looking for a partner to execute. And better to be lucky than good, but we met the Let Us Entertain You people in Chicago who um, directed us to Jeff Alexander, who was CEO of one of their um, concepts uh, called Wowbow. And Jeff had taken Wowbow from primarily brick and mortar in Chicago to a dark kitchen concept. And he's got close to 500 dark kitchens operating throughout the United States right now. So he loved our skinny butcher concept. And um, he said, let us onboard this onto our existing Wowbow platform. So we're in 17 markets right now. It looks like we're going to be in close to 30 or 40 by the end of this year, based on the, the Jeff's vision and the projections they're giving us. So we view this as a point of strategic differentiation, a way for consumers to sample us. Um, and it's kind of a brand building exercise even before they come across us in retail. So we're building our retail distribution footprint simultaneously with our dark kitchen concept. You have done some really fun marketing campaigns in the past with the Stranger Things, the TV show. And I think you mentioned that in the article that you're you're going to have a, a campaign with the No Kid Hungry initiative. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that and what's what's in store. Sure. So we kind of ask ourselves, look, can we do well by doing good? And, you know, can we pay it forward in some respect? 
So we started looking and can we do some kind of cause-related marketing campaign uh, to kind of make the world a better place, not to be corny. And, you know, one of our board members has been associated with No Kid Hungry based out of Washington, D.C. They are part of the Share Our Strength organization, which is a 39-year-old entity, $145 million a year budget. And in 2010, to address childhood food insecurity, they launched the No Kid Hungry campaign. They've subsequently provided over a billion meals since their insistence. Um, and we just fell in love with them when, when we met with them. So we came up with an idea. What if we could have celebrities winking, kind of like the old Got Milk campaign? Can we own the wink the way Got Milk owned the white mustache? And No Kid Hungry has about 200 celebrities who lend their names to the organization. So starting in October, we're going to formally launch with them. And forget about pay it forward. We're calling it wink it forward. We're going to have celebrities, business icons, athletes winking, posting it to their social and encouraging their social followers to donate $5 to No Kid Hungry. And if and when they do that, they're going to be eligible to win prizes, really unique experience that we're going to be providing. I know that you've mentioned that turkey, fish alternatives may be in your future. Those seem to have very different sensory properties as opposed to like a fried chicken sandwich. How, what kind of challenges are going to arise or have you guys already conquered those challenges in, in product development and formulation? So in terms of the fish items, we believe that the, you know, kind of like a fish fillet or fish stick, plant-based there's a real opportunity in the, the plant-based alternative here. So that'll be merchandise side-by-side side with our crazy crispy chicken nuggets, tenders, breasts, and patties. So expect to see probably first quarter of next year, some skinny butcher, crazy crispy fish fillets and fish sticks. Now with turkey, some of our customers have asked us to literally come up with like a ground turkey item. And we're really happy with the flavor profile. And we'll probably start testing it again first quarter of next year as well. So that would be a departure from us. That would not be breaded and fried. That would literally be in the meat aisle. But the, the flavor profile is exceptional and it would probably be in a ground format. But I think the next big iteration you're going to see from us is fish sticks and fish fillets in our crazy crispy um, packaging with under the Wink It Forward for No Kid Hungry uh, umbrella. Dave Zilko is co-founder and CEO of Skinny Butcher. An entrepreneur for over 25 years, Zilko sold his first specialty food company, Garden Fresh Gourmet Salsa, to Campbell's Soup for $231 million in 2015. Read more about the idea and Zilko's strategy behind Skinny Butcher in the August issue of Food Technology. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. 
Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.